Good morning. My name's Raya and I'll be reading from Acts 1 verses, chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 and Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please take one at the back table over there. That's our gift to you. Acts 1 verses 1 to 11. Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait, for the, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to, to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Well, good, good morning, everyone. It's, it's great to be here. My name's James. If we haven't met, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I've got the joy of opening up God's Word this morning. So can I encourage you, have the book of Acts open in front of you there, Acts 1. Um, I'm going to pray for us um, as we come to God's Word now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you've given us your word, that you've made yourself known to us, and we pray that, that you'll remove the distractions of our week or our day or the week to come, 
so that we can just see clearly more, to have better clarity um, in the times that we live in, so that we know what it is to live for our King Jesus, who was risen, ruling, and reigning on high. And you have not left us empty, but you've given yourself to us. And we pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Clarity brings confidence. Right thinking gives us confidence in how to live today and tomorrow, to where, where to work, what to do, what to be. And, and clarity brings confidence. And so what we want to do as a church over the next 10 weeks is we want to have clarity so that we can have confidence with the mission that we have in front of us. Jesus left us with this mission of making and growing disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. And we want to have clarity that brings confidence around that so that as we set out to see thousands of lives transformed by Jesus in Western Sydney and beyond, that we can have confidence in that because we have clarity about who God is or to have clarity about who Jesus is. Now, if you're here today for the first time, if you're here and you're a seeker, maybe you don't yet know Jesus, or you want to know more about who Jesus is, the next 10 weeks, as we look at the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament of the Bible, (coughs) hopefully you'll be able to get some better clarity about who Jesus is. And so for us, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to look to see if we can get clarity around who Jesus is, around the gospel, so that we can have confidence with our mission and our vision to see Western Sydney transformed by Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do over the next 10 weeks. We're going to look at Acts. We're not going to be looking at it in depth. We're going to be sort of taking a, you know, a, a plain view, zoomed out. We're going to pick a couple of chapters of, of, of themes as we go through the book of Acts. And hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to come back and go through the book of Acts in quite rigid detail. But today we're going to be looking at Acts for the next 10 weeks as we seek to get clarity And so today, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to see what the ascension of Jesus brings us as followers of Jesus. Now, what's the ascension? Well, what I mean by the ascension is it is after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, God The God-man breaks into the world. He lives the life that we could not live. He lives a perfect life. He died the death that we should have died. He was raised from the grave. He's given a new body. He talks with his disciples. And the ascension is that after that time, Jesus, he ascends. He goes into heaven. He goes to the throne room of God. And so we're going to see what does that bring us today? We're going to see three things. But before we see what those three things are that Jesus brings us after his life, death, and resurrection, (coughs) it's probably just good to quickly ask the question, well, what is the book of Acts all about? We all come today having an idea of what we think the book of Acts is about. Well, let's have a look and see what Luke tells us that the book of Acts is about. Have a look at verse 1. It actually gives us a hint straight away. In my former book, Theophilus, now Luke wrote a former book, which was the Gospel of Luke, volume 1, and volume 2 is the book of Acts. They go together. And so, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. There is our hint of what the book of Acts is all about. The Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do. Now, the book of Acts continues what Jesus is doing. 
See, the begin implies continuation. So the gospel, the gospel of Luke is about Jesus coming to earth, dying on a cross, being raised, doing miracles. And then Acts is all about what Jesus is doing now from the throne room of God. There we go. So the book of Acts is actually about what Jesus is doing. Clarity brings confidence. And so what is Jesus doing? Well, what does Jesus bring us? Well, there's three things this morning. The first one is he brings confident security in Jesus. He brings us confident security in him. Now, my personal experience is become a Christian. You need to, get, you need to become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus, get out of hell, get into heaven, and, and become a follower of Jesus. And my idea of that as a teenager was that then, okay, I'm now saved and I've just got to wait till Jesus returns. Just hang in there, be a good person. Hopefully the world won't become too chaotic. And then just wait and hang in there, be a good person until Jesus returns. And hopefully everything around us doesn't get too crazy. But I, I, I had a misunderstanding of having, I had the wrong clarity about the time that I lived in. Because Acts 1 and 2 shows us something that I think we often miss. Because the book of Acts is all about Jesus and what he's doing from the throne room of heaven. Now, I can show you that. Have a look at just chapters 1 and 2 of Acts are filled with this language. Verse 2, taken up. He's taken up to heaven. Verse 3, he's alive. Verse 9, he's taken up. Verse 11, he's taken up. He's alive. There's this language in chapter 1 constantly of Jesus being taken up. He's alive. He's risen. You get to verse 22 as well about how Jesus was taken up from us about his resurrection you go to chapter 2 and we keep hearing the same thing look at chapter 2 just verse 31 seeing what was to come he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured it out now what you now see and hear. Have you noticed that, that Acts 1 and 2, it's Jesus has been taken up. He's exalted. This idea of exalted language is that he's the Messiah. He's the Lord of the the. the King of King David, the promise made to King David that a king would come and be enthroned forever and ever. Here it is. He's been exalted, which means that he's gone to the throne room of God. He's not just sitting there separate to the world. No, no. What it's saying is that Christ is risen and he's reigning and ruling. He's the king of the world. It poses a fundamental truth that Jesus is the Lord. He is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he was made, he's the image of the invisible God. All things were created by him and through him and for him. And therefore, every single thing on this universe, whether it's the most beautiful beach view on the sand, whether you're on the most beautiful mountaintop, whether you're in bed, no matter what you're doing, Jesus is over all of that. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing happens outside of his control. <coughs> Jesus is risen. 
See, that's meant to give you confident security that Jesus isn't distant, he isn't far. No, Jesus is actually ruling over the world. Nothing surprises Jesus. And for these apostles who have seen Jesus calm the storm, they've seen him cast out demons, they've seen him raise kids from the dead, they saw him raise Lazarus, they saw him go to a cross, they've seen him alive, and now Jesus ascends, they're thinking, oh man, Jesus is leaving us. The one who brought us great comfort in the midst of suffering, the one who gave us great sense of peace in the midst of opposition, the one who walked beside us, who ate with us, he's left us. How can we face tomorrow? Well, we can face tomorrow because he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's ascended, he's left his disciples behind. He appears like he's disappeared, but he hasn't actually disappeared. He's in the throne room of God, ruling and reigning. I may have left you physically, but I'm still at work in the world. I wonder, do you see Jesus as that? Do you see him as Lord? The one who's ruling over all. Because as we come to grips with the idea of the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, it therefore means whether you want to submit or whether you don't, he's still king of kings. But it means for us as followers of Jesus, it makes us realize that It's going to affect how you live life now. It's going to affect how you view your sex life, your sexuality. It's going to affect the way that you view your money and your relationships. It's going to affect the words that now come out of your mouth because Jesus is risen. He's ruling and he's reigning from the throne room. And it means that every human leader, whether it's Putin, whether it's Biden, whether it's Albo, Whatever it may be, there is one who is greater, who is ruling over all, and nothing surprises him. It gives us confident security in Jesus that everything that happens in this world isn't a shock to him. And it means for us that as we go and make disciples of Jesus, no matter how chaotic the world may appear to us to be, It means we can have absolute confidence that Christianity will never die. Why? Because we have a risen saviour who's alive, enthroned. It gives us absolute confidence that as we go out and make disciples of Jesus, nothing can stop it. The reason Christianity will continue to grow is because Jesus is ruling and reigning. The movement of Christianity is an absolute sure thing. It gives us confidence as a church that we can do it, that people will be saved, churches will be planted, and people will find life in Christ. Jesus is at work now, ruling and reigning. That's the time that we're in. You know, whether another pandemic comes in our lifetime, we don't, we don't need to be rocked by it. It's not to shatter our world or whether another war comes or whether recession hits, we don't have to worry about tomorrow because Jesus, we have confident security in Jesus because he's a king who's ruling, who's exalted. And it gives us absolutely great confidence that we have been saved because Jesus is alive. As we act upon this mission of making disciples of Jesus, we can act with absolute confidence because we have confident security in Jesus. 
But before we get to the task of making disciples, the ascension brings us confident security in Jesus. But before we get to that task of making, of what we're here to do, there's another thing that the ascension of Jesus brings us, and it actually brings us incredible relational intimacy with God. With the ascension of Jesus, we are given relational intimacy with God. We're going to see that now. Because there's an unusual response here by Jesus that the disciples weren't really expecting. See, Jesus has appeared to the disciples for 40 days. He's shown them his resurrected body. He's talked to them about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God's going to come in and do this and that. And he promises to them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the apostles ask a really serious question that's filled with serious theological errors. Have a look at verse 6. They gather around Jesus. They ask him, oh, Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What they're doing here in this moment is they're coming to Jesus going, Jesus, are you going to restore us physically? One race, one nation, a political overthrow. They're saying, Jesus, are you going to make us the one nation of the world? Are you going to kick Rome off its kingdom? Make us the one people. So that we can rule and we can live in a utopia, in a paradise as the Israelites. That's what they're asking. They're asking Jesus a physical question. Are you going to bless us health-wise, physically? Are you going to bring in all these physical things for us now? We too can misread the times we live in. And when we misread the times that we live in, we'll come up with things that lead us to confusion and confusion will reign. But that's why we need clarity because clarity brings confidence. And look at Jesus' answer to them. Like he says, um, it's not for you to know the times and dates when I'm going to physically return and bring in the fullness of Isaiah chapter 40 to 60, you know, the, the fullness of this kingdom. But do you notice what his answer is? Verse 8. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He says, here's the answer. The Holy Spirit. Like, oh. Like, I don't know if that's what they're expecting. He says, the answer is the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual in character. See, the book of Acts is real about the spiritual realm. We live in the 21st century. We're all about matter. We're all about materialism. We're all about the physical. We want physical health. We want financial security. We want all these things. That's what brings life. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. See, the book of Acts is real that there is mind, soul, and spirit. That we aren't living just in a material world, but there is a real spiritual realm. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And this is not a new plan, mind you. This isn't something that Jesus has just come up with. Throughout the Old Testament, we have Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. We have Joel chapter 2. We have all these passages that talk about a time when God will enthrone his king on David's throne and then he'll pour out the Spirit upon all his people. And here is this moment. With the ascension of Jesus, we are given the Spirit. The world doesn't get, I don't know, does the world actually get that? That actually God is living in us. The third member of the Trinity is actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, God is with you. 
It's an incredible thought to think that the God of the universe is in you right now. But how does God take up residency in us? Because you might be here today and you think like, my life is so dirty, filled with shame and guilt. How could a God want to reside in me? Which is a great question. Maybe you're here today though and you think, yeah, God should reside in me because I'm morally right. I go to church seven times a week. I pray, I read my Bible. You know, and you think because of your goodness, God can reside. Now the Bible tells us that both are wrong. In the, in the sense of, no matter how morally upright you are, God can never reside in you because of your morals. But also, it can't, your sin and your shame can't be too great that God won't reside in you because if you're in Jesus, you've been washed clean. You've been made right. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. And now God can dwell in you because of everything Christ has done at the cross. The reason you have the Spirit is because of the gospel, because of Jesus at the cross. And as Jesus ascends, he has victory. As he ascends to his throne room, he doesn't leave us, but he comes into us. So whether it's on your wedding days, you look at your wife in the eyes, God's with you, or whether you're looking at your husband's eyes as he lies on his bed dying, God is with you. Whether you're in a dungeon in China, or whether you're on a mountaintop experience, God is with you. Whether you're facing great physical health or whether you're facing terminal cancer, Jesus says, I am with you. There is intimate relationship there with you. As I rule the world, I am with you by being in you. See, sometimes we think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus beside us? Now, the disciples had that. They used to have Jesus beside them. Walking, Jesus exalts to heaven and guess what? How great it is to think we don't have Jesus beside us but we have him in us now. The Spirit brings, the God is in us. And every believer has God with them. That's what um, verse 38 tells us. Anyone who believes in the gospel, anyone who trusts in Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. Verse 38 of chapter 2. See, you turning up through those doors today and walking through them doesn't mean God is now with you. God's been with you all week. Whether the music's good or whether it's bad, God is still with you. Relational intimacy. Every day this week, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had a relational intimacy with God whether you've felt it or whether you haven't felt it. That's incredible, isn't it? Now, last week, I've, you can probably talk about a croaky throat. Last week, I found myself in bed with the flu. I've spent, in my whole life, I've spent about half a day to a day once. You know, I get the flu, I'll have it for half a day, and then a day later, I'm out of bed fully active. Last week, it was five days wiped out in bed. And... You think, like, oh, life's horrible, man, flu, it's terrible, the life's world's falling apart. And it's like, oh. But actually, in that moment, there was incredible deep relational intimacy with God. Because he's with me in that. Whether I had the man flu or not, he's there with us. He's intimate with us. It's, it's a beautiful picture to think that the God of the universe, as Jesus leaves, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone, I'm going to come into you. I'm gonna be, you're going to be filled. You're filled with a person. 
the third member of the Trinity. Imagine a, a young mum. She's, she's at a Kia shopping centre. It's the biggest one in Australia. It's packed. She's got a three-year-old son and this young mum's walking around Ikea trying to buy some beautiful stuff for the house. Ikea is packed out. People are there buying everything to make the house look really wonderful. I'm sure Pastor RJ was probably there at the same time as well because he likes Ikea. And here's this young mum and this young boy just disappears. You know, he goes for a walk. And for the next 30 minutes, this mum is doing whatever she can to find her son and her son is in tears going, where is my mum? And for the next 30 minutes, there's this lost child. And then after 30 minutes, the mum finds a three-year-old. She runs up to the three-year-old son and says, gives him a big hug and says, I never want to lose you ever again. And Jesus, he comes after the one lost sheep and he chases you down. And says, I'm never going to lose you. Relational intimacy because of Christ. They don't, see these, these men, they don't want to lose Jesus. He's going, he's ascended. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You're not losing me. You're going to be given the Spirit. And the Spirit transforms you and makes you more like Christ. That's what the Spirit does, doesn't it? It makes God aware it's, it transforms you to be more and more like our, our saviour Jesus so it brings us clarity doesn't it we, we, clarity brings confidence to know that we have relational intimacy with God given to us by the Holy Spirit which actually at the same time helps you and me understand the time that we live in because that's what the Bible wants us to know is that when the Spirit comes, it tells us that we're living in a time between Christ's ascension and his return. And therefore, that leads us to the third thing. Therefore, we actually have a task. Because the Spirit has come, because we have this relational intimacy, because Christ is on his throne, we now have an incredible task in front of us. And therefore, what does the, the ascension of Jesus do? Well, it brings empowered reality for the task at hand. It gives us empowered reality for the task at hand. <coughs> Pentecost, chapter 2, tells us of the time that we're living in. See, the apostles thought Jesus would come. They were hoping he'd come physically and knock Rome off its perch, give them a one nation, one race, people who rule the world. And that they'd bring the, the empire, they'd bring the kingdom of God in by force. No, 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 but Jesus tells us, no, no, no. We are empowered by the Spirit to witness Jesus, to be a witness to Jesus. See, Jesus says, the way I'm bringing my kingdom in isn't by force, it's by the preaching of the gospel, verse 8 of chapter 1. How is Jesus going to rule the world? Through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 8, notice that, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, right? They've asked the question, how are you going to bring the kingdom in? He said, I'm going to bring it in through the Holy Spirit as you testify to Jesus. Preach the gospel to, the, to, to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the What Jesus is saying is that you've, got, you've got to go to every race, to every nation, to every people group on the world. This message is to go to them. How's the kingdom going to come in? You're going to preach the gospel. 
And the scope of that gospel is to everyone. Did you notice that in verse 8 of chapter 1? And did you notice the scope in the day of Pentecost as well, in chapter 2? Have a look at chapter 2. We notice the scope there of this witness. It's to go to everyone. Now, the day of Pentecost was a third festival on the Jewish calendar. They had Passover. They had Pentecost. And really, within the Jewish community, Pentecost was the biggest one that they celebrated. It was the one that most of them would come to. It seemed to be celebrated historically more than Passover. And so Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. And so 50 days after Passover, you would find that there would be Jews from all these different parts of the world that had been dispersed. They'd come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, to give thanks for the harvest, to thank God. And we get to Acts chapter 2 and we read, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, in a sense, in the Old Testament, fire meant the presence of God. Some other places it means the judgment, but here it's obviously meaning the presence of God is here. They saw what seemed to be tongues, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now here in Acts 2, the tongues here isn't some private angelic tongue spoken. It's not some tongue that other people don't understand. Here in Acts chapter 2, the tongues that it's talking about is... One that other people from other nations understand. Yeah, here's an example. Okay. It doesn't say a Jew. Well, a Jew comes from Germany to Pentecost. Their mother tongue is German. And so what happens is they're here in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden they're gone, there's a Galilean Jew speaking German. Oh. And they're speaking, well, it's not probably German, right? But it's probably more like Cappadocia or Medes or Pathinians. You know, they're. they're they're hearing, no matter what part of the world these Jews came from, their mother tongue, they're going, hang on, these guys are speaking my language. And they're hearing a language of going, that's who Jesus is. They hear the gospel in their own language. So that it tells us right, that this is a message for everyone. This is for all tribes, all tongues, all languages. Here, this, that's what Acts 2 is about. It's, it's about the pouring out of the Spirit to tell us that we're in the time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Christ. That's <coughs> incredible. And it was incredible. We didn't read it, but look at verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had way too much wine. So these people are sitting around thinking, hang on, these apostles are speaking in different languages. They're drunk. Now, we know that they're not drunk, but why do people think that they're drunk? Because... People who are drunk are fearless. People who are drunk don't care what other people think of them. You think about a 150 kilo guy, he's probably had a bit too much to drink, he's at the pub. 150, and think, you know what, I can do a somersault now. So he hops up on the table, right, fearless. He doesn't care what his mates think and he attempts the front somersault and doesn't work out, right? He's drunk. And so they're thinking, these people are drunk. Why? Because these men are fearless and not afraid of what anyone else thinks of them. Because, see, when people are drunk, 
they lose a grip of reality. People who are drunk lose a grip of reality. They forget stuff. Whereas these men, no, no, no. They've been empowered with reality in this moment to go, we know who Jesus is. We've been given the spirit. We can speak German. And they're not worried what anyone else thinks of them as they tell the gospel to these people. They're bold. They're courageous because they don't care what anyone else thinks of them. They were far too happy to worry about or be afraid of what people thought of them. They've been they had this empowered reality to not worry about their image. They had this empowered reality not to worry about what they look like or how they sound or whether they're charismatic or whether they're not. They don't appear drunk because they're naive. No, they appear it because they have a real sense of reality of Jesus being risen, exalted, and it's him who brings in the kingdom. So they didn't care about the opinion of other people. The reason they weren't worried about what others thought of them was because the only opinion that mattered to them was the opinion of Jesus who came and saved them, who loves them, and who's ruling for them. And in a way, for us today, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, as, as, as believers, you have the Spirit, the Spirit's chipping away at you. You know those moments where you're worried about your body image? You're worried what people think about the way you dress and whether you've put a few kilos on? The Spirit, like as you journey as a Christian, it chips away at you to a point where you start to not so worry about what other people think. You know, that, that moment you're a yes person, you say yes to everyone because you have to make sure you don't let anyone down. And so in that moment, as the Spirit chips away at you, one day you say no. And you're going like, oh, that was so freeing. That's the Spirit at work in you to empower you with the reality that it's okay to say no and that you don't have to be there for people every single time. So the Holy Spirit, it empowers a reality for you to know that Jesus is on his throne, you're dearly loved, you have the greatest identity in the world and nothing can get in the road of that. And so as we sing songs together, as we pray together, as we read the Bible together, as we're filled with the Spirit, as we do those things, it gives us an empowered reality of the gospel. So we know who Jesus is more clearly, that we're more forgiven than we could ever realize, that we're more loved than we could ever comprehend. And so that as we go through every week, we have this empowered reality of the reality of who God is. You know, Philippians chapter 4 says, do not worry about anything, but in prayer and petition, present your request to God in prayer and the peace of God will transcend. See, what it's saying there is that pray that so that you will get a zoomed out view of the world from where Jesus sits. See, the peace that transcends is to have an empowered reality that Jesus is on his throne ruling and reigning. And it's an empowered reality of, of chapter 1, verse 8, that as the kingdom comes, for the kingdom to come, you need to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it wants us to have absolute clarity that we are in the days of salvation. To see that Jesus, it wants us to see what has Jesus' ascension to heaven brought us. Well, it's brought us confident security in Jesus, that he's ruling everything. We don't need to be worried about the world. But it also reminds us that we've been brought to have relational intimacy with God himself. That he's with us all the time. But it also has given us an empowered reality to know that we're in the, 
an empowered reality for the task of being witnesses to the gospel, to the world. That the Spirit has come on us to bear witness to Jesus, to take a gospel to a dying world. So if you're here today and, and maybe you've attended a church that meets all your needs. And now a church that meets all your needs, you've probably found a church that's off mission and off task. Or if you want a church where you are met, where everything's about you and being served and you want a church that meets you at every point, then you've probably yourself missed the task. We've missed the task of this passage. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. Now, in this room, we're probably, we, we, when we come to Acts 1 and 2, we, we, we probably go two ways, right? Here it is. Either you're, we, we, we pick verses we love, right? We'll either pick the first couple of verses of chapter 2, we're Pentecost people, or we'll pick the end of chapter 2 and go, we're community people, we're all about unity, eating food and breaking bread together. And so what I just want to do for a moment is, because generally what happens is we're either, we either make way too much of Acts chapter 2 and go, we need to go back to those days, or we may be on the other side and we, we really don't make any fuss about Acts chapter 2. We don't even think about it. So, Acts chapter 2, we aren't to get back to the days of Acts chapter 2. You know, when someone says to you, hey, we just need to get back to Acts chapter 2. We're in the days of Acts chapter 2. Theologically, Acts chapter 2 tells us, it was prophesied about a day that would come when the Spirit would be poured out after the ascension of Jesus. And so Acts chapter 2 is a, a reminder to us that we are in the days of the pouring out of the Spirit. That we've been empowered by the Spirit to go and testify to Jesus. And so therefore, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a really key chapter for us. We can't make way too much of it, but we can't make too little of it either. Because it tells us of the clarity of the time that you and me live in. We live in the time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And in that moment, we go and testify to Jesus. And the gospel, see, what we learn from Pentecost is that God's spirit fuels God's mission by empowering frail and weak people like you and me to bear witness to Jesus, to the risen and ruling Jesus who's exalted. See, the gospel in a way in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it's unleashed. At the end of chapter 1, there's 120 people. At the end of chapter 2, there's 3,000 people in the family of God. Why? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning who has followers who are empowered by the Spirit, who are bearing witness to the gospel. And we are living in that same time. We have a ruling and reigning God who's empowered us with his Spirit to go and bear witness to Jesus. And therefore, Jesus' priorities become our priorities. As followers of Jesus who are empowered by the Spirit, we now become, we have new priorities. We have this new empowered reality. As the Spirit chips away at your self-centeredness and makes you more like Christ, we have this new reality of living for Jesus. So it makes us affect, it affects our priorities in life. It affects how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you raise your kids. So that's what it is to follow Jesus. Now, 
In the book of Acts, we're going to see that the Spirit, there's some pretty incredible things that take place through the empowered people and the empowered apostles. There's some incredible things that take place. But the main thing that you're going to notice in the book of Luke and the book of Acts is one thing. The main thing you will come across is that the Spirit of God empowers people to preach the gospel. That's the main thing you'll see. Chapter 1 of Luke, chapter 2 of Luke, you see Zechariah, you see Elizabeth, you see Mary. They're all empowered by the Spirit. We see Jesus, who the Spirit comes upon. Then in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see they preach the gospel. Peter preaches the gospel. Acts chapter And, and the main thing, we're empowered to bear witness. Which means that we are the means by which God brings people to salvation. We are the means by which God brings people to salvation. Do you want people to know Jesus? You have one life. What's your vision of success? Because what your vision of success is, is what you'll sacrifice your life for. It'll make you get up at 4.30 in the morning. You sacrifice what you love. And the Holy Spirit makes you love Jesus more. Filled with the love of him. I suppose, have you been gripped today by the gospel? Have you been gripped by the gospel of Jesus? Have you been gripped by that reality that he is actually ruling and reigning? That we are to be witnesses. Are you aware of that relational intimacy with God? Is Jesus more real to you today? Do you, do you grasp his sovereignty and his rule? Because we now have a new agenda. We have a new task. The gospel's been unleashed for us to go to all tribes and all tongues and all nations. We have a new ladder we are climbing. There's a quote by, um, I'm going to put a quote up on the screen, by Thomas Meston. He says, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. What wall is the ladder that you're climbing leaning against? What wall? Pentecost tells us that we've been given a task Pentecost reminds us of the ascension of Jesus. It, it, it tells us that we have this incredible confidence, security in the King Jesus who's ruling. We have this relational intimacy with God. We have this empowered reality not to fear or to be afraid of what others may think of us as we conjure up the courage to share the good news of Jesus. And so that shapes us as a church. It shapes us as a church in the sense of, here it is, are we willing to grow? This this commission says, you know, are you willing to go? Are you willing to give up? May we not be a place where we attend, but a place where we send people. We send people out from us. It shapes you as individuals and as a family. Does it shape your prayers? Does it shape your finances? Does it shape your time and your energy? Does it shape how you have the perseverance to run the race? See, the Apostle Paul says at the end of Acts chapter 20, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I finish the race and complete the task. 
And what's the task that he was given? To testify to the gospel of God's grace. May we be a church that's unstoppable in knowing and then having clarity that brings confidence for our world. May we have that clarity and that confidence to know the task that we have in front of us. There's an American um, missionary who went to India called Adonai Ram Judson. He went to um, America, in, so he went from America to India in the 19th century. Um, people wanted to stop him going, but he could not resist. He had to go and take the gospel because he, he felt the call of these passages to go, hey, it goes to all nations. But the problem was he found a girl. He found a girl that he wanted to marry and people weren't too keen on sending people overseas, especially your daughter. And so he writes a letter to his, to his future father-in-law asking permission and the cost to give up his daughter. And he says this, he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Because back then, you obviously, if you went over to India, you weren't going to come home. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land, her subjection to hardship, suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Jesus who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing, the immortal souls, for the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her saviour from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair to life. Can we do that? We can because we can give that stuff up. Why? Because we have confidence, security in a saviour who's on his throne. We have relational intimacy with the God who has sent us and he's left his spirit with us to empower us for that task. Let's pray. Father, grip us by your gospel, we pray. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart to give up what we need to give up. But Lord, may we be fearless and not afraid because the only opinion that matters is yours. And so Lord, may we sit in that identity today, we pray. Amen.